every day in the vans they drove us around in. We roomed together for two weeks and we just became inseparable over this two week time we were doing this competition. And every night there were 15 people in this competition. And mm. every night I would get off stage and every night Mitch would go, man, Chesler, you are the funniest guy in this thing. <laughs> and every night Mitch would get off stage and I'd be like, Mitchie, you are absolutely hands down the funniest guy in this thing. And every <laughs> night there would be judges and votes and every night Mitch and I finished 14th and 15th. <laughs> about LA talk radio. <laughs> I knew I had a feeling man because I was like well first of all why bring it up you know what I mean but also like we we saw each other at the ice house and you were you we just we just started talking we just started shooting the shit so I was like ah fuck it I totally forgot about LA talk radio oh yeah. my goodness gracious that was like a billion and a half years ago was I, that the National Lampoon building yes yes on set right Yep. I totally remember that. Yeah, it was fun. We had a good time, man. Yeah, I just had a great time. You had way shorter hair, no beard. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was a completely different person a at that completely point. Completely different person. Totally clean cut. Did not start shooting uh, anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. It was good, though, man. It was a lot of fun. And then for some reason, though, I don't think I saw you for that the rest of that time and then came back left LA came back to LA and then I saw you again at the ice house with uh uh Jeremy Hotz. It was Hotz or Swartzen? I think it was Swartzen. Was it? Oh. Yeah, you were in I had, you know, I I work with Nick Swartzen a lot as you know. Right, right. right. And um for uh for those of them who don't know, I I tour a lot with Nick Swartzen and Nick was at the ice house and we were doing the Saturday night and you were in the green room. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yep, that's that right, man. the first time I had seen you in several years. Several years, yeah. And we, all, and you know what? That audience was so fucking good that night, man. Everybody had a good set. Everybody had a good time. There were some good pop-ins, too. Let's talk about this, though. Is it is it really possible to eat it at the Ice House? I mean, <laughs> they funny. are the most gracious audience you could think of. And everyone who works that club will always tell you, oh, the Ice House is the best club in the country. Best club yeah. in the country. And every time someone has like a TV spot they're going to do, they'll go to the Ice House to yes. work it out. Absolutely. Because it's not for people who don't know, the Ice House is not actually in Los Angeles. It's in Pasadena, which is the right. same Gabriel Valley. So those people who come out, it's kind of like being on the road and they're very grateful. Yes, they are. They yeah. love. They're they're very grateful. They love comedy, yeah. and they're there to fucking have a good time, man. I've never yeah. had a. I've never had a bad set of the Ice House. It's really hard to eat it at the Ice yeah. House. It's, you have to really suck. Yeah, yeah, you do. Eat it and, at the Ice House. And you know what? I love. That's one of the. I love the way that club is set up. There's nothing wrong. You know what I mean? Like just it's just perfectly the fucking Perfect. audience. Yeah. You know what I like too is they're super nice. They um they always have snacks. Really good snacks. Last time I was in the green room. Yeah, last time I was in the green room, they had little 
fucking somebody made doggy bags of brownies for the comedians. And I was just like, and not special ones, but they were they were really good. Which I no longer eat. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, you now you now are, are uh you're going straight edge on us. I'm not sure, after- but you know, I have seven hundred bottles of wine in my wine cellar, you know, and I, I drink I drink champagne on the regular, but right. not cava, not prosecco, champagne. Yeah, what, but, made uh, you, uh, what made you go off the pot, man? I heard I heard that rumor going around that you're not smoking anymore. People don't believe it. In fact, no. they, really, they're like, "No way, Chastler, you didn't stop smoking." And the truth is, I did. Wow. I stopped on um, on March 19th, and I was actually on the road with Nick. We were in Florida, mm. and I was just, you know, typical me. I was a guy who would get up in the morning and smoke and smoke all day and wow. just. Hey, pot doesn't affect me. I can do my life, and I'm still because I've been doing it so long. It's just right. it's maintenance. And uh, like we'd be at a restaurant, I'd forgot to, I'd order half my meal. I'd meet him downstairs in the lobby, and I would leave stuff in my bedroom. And I stepped on a kid's foot at CVS. And for three <laughs> days, Nick is like teasing me. He keeps saying like, "What do you have a tumor, Chancellor? What do you have a tumor, Chancellor? What, what the fuck? You have a fucking tumor, Chancellor?" Right. And uh, I was on the phone with uh somebody uh somebody mm-hmm. and um well special person oh. and uh we were speaking and it was like i had gotten to florida on the 16th first show was the 17th thursday saturday night we're talking in between shows and i was saying to her i'm saying you know i'm on the phone um, on the phone i'm like nick keeps saying i have a tumor nick keeps telling me i have a tumor he's teasing me that i have a tumor like in the conversation i'm telling her this and she goes you don't have a tumor you're high all the time. <laughs> and that was it. Wow. That was the only thing said. And I just went, huh? Yeah. Jesus. I, and that was it. That was literally all it took. There was no judgment. There was no, you know, you really should quit. There was- yeah. But so and- now, so you stopped doing it, but now are you, do you think you're, you're doing that thing where like, you're going to, you're going to stop for a while, but then no. maybe you'll ease it back in. Never. Never again. No. Wow. I am done. There's no issue about it. I, uh, I mean, I spent for 44 years. The yeah. Small, small, small breaks in between. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, at this point, I figure I've, uh, there's other things in my life I want, and um, they already show up. You know, I have this, John, I have this kind of metaphysical view of life. I have, I'm a little bit hippy-dippy, you know. Uh, sure. Listening to the Grateful Dead since I'm eight, four hundred nice. dead shows under my belt. You I was know, just we. I think we just emailed Bob Weir to see if he wanted to come on the show. Oh, that's I would love it. if you got Bob Weir. I'm co-hosting. <laughs> You're like I'm forcing my way back in. That's I'm fine. Play when I'll fly to New York. I'm co-hosting that episode. If you get Bobby, let's do it. Um, that's great. But I have a real, I have a little bit of a metaphysical view of life, and it's kind of pretty simple. We all are individuals sitting in our own rowboat. Mm-hmm. And it is a rowboat, and rowboats have a finite amount of room. And mm-hmm. if you have too much stuff in that little rowboat, the rowboat's going to go down and start to sink. And if you want new shit to show up in your boat, you got to get shit out of your boat and make room for it. Nice. And so um, I figured out that we took up probably sixty-five percent of my boat, and the minute I quit smoking, all of a sudden shit starts showing up. Nice, man. And so I really attribute it to – I don't want to say, oh, it held me back, but I would say that it definitely took up a lot of space in my life that stopped other things that I always wanted to show up to show up. 
Yeah. And the other thing, too, is it's like it's not even like you're necessarily condemning weed or condemning people who smoke mm -hmm. weed or anything like that either. You're just saying well, that this particular thing in my life at this point in time was just was just taking up too much of my too much of my own life. And I need to get it out. That's not bad. It's like anybody get, getting rid of something, you know, it's anybody getting rid of something, and you know, with pot or any habit or something that other people might view as, you know, detrimental or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's just like sometimes it just takes the right person to say mm -hmm. the right thing at the right time in the right way for you to actually hear it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm in my, I'm in my, you know, I'm over 35. I can't count how many times my mom has said, why do you keep smoking that marijuana? When are you <laughs> smoking pot, God damn it. And when I told her I quit, she's like, can't you tell your brother? And I said, no, because right. you won't have the listening for it. For me, it really was the right person saying it just the right way yeah. at the right time. And it was just, the, it just was that way you know what yeah, i mean there's that one quote i don't know what it is and if our listeners can chime in with it if you, if you know what it is they're pretty good with that stuff it's something about uh coming in out of the rain you know it's the right per like you you will people somebody will sit in that in that fucking rainstorm or whatever until the right person's like hey why don't you come, on, fucking, in. come on in dry off like yeah like i said you're not you don't have a tumor you're high <laughs> all right. the time and that was the only fucking line that was it yeah and I went, wow. Well, that's great, man. Got it. And then three days after that, there's a little epilogue to that. Three mm -hmm. days after that, I sent this person a text message. It's a woman. And uh, mm -hmm. I said, by the way, three days, no pot. And the response was, that's the best text I've ever received. Wow. If that's not enough. Yeah. Then I don't know what is. Were you, were you like better than the nudes I've sent? Like, was it like, were you worried about like the, or no? <laughs> no that's cool how long have you been talking to this person that like how well do they know you when they were just like you know like did it did it take them a while to realize it was the weed thing well you know it wasn't really like that um we were friends for let's see i don't know several months mm -hmm. and um shortly before that there was a realization in the friendship that oh you smoke every day really that's kind of gross. But, I mean, that was just the vibe. She never said anything like that. It was just. My no friend and I were just talking about. My friend and I were just talking about that. Where it's like, I'm I'm not. I'm the exact. I don't know what it is. But I'm not that type of person. I don't begrudge anybody for doing that kind of shit either. But I've never been the come home, come home and have a, a, a beer guy. I don't like right. it. Um, I've never like smoked a book. I, I don't do any of that kind of stuff. Even right. if I've had a hard day for some reason, I'd rather just live in whatever the current state of emotion is. And then, you know, wake up the next day and do whatever. However, I am a very social drinker. So if I'm out to eat or out with friends or out at a party, absolutely. Like I just go, you know, I mean, right. blackout, just follow that, that follows suit immediately, but I never drink alone. I never do any of that stuff alone. Yes. So I don't know. I don't know what that end is like. And I'm a wine guy. I collect wine. I have a wine cellar with hundreds and hundreds Ooh. and hundreds of bottles. And I'm like a little ballistically crazy about the wine. And, you <laughs> do know, you go to wine tastings where they do that? You know? Do I go to wine tastings? That's right, how right. you learn about wine. That's how it really all started for me. Nice. And, um, but I'm not the kind of guy that comes home every day to have a drink, although I do like my cocktails. Yeah. And I keep a full bar in the house with, you know, and I like, 
I'm a little, I'm kind of old fashioned and old school that way, a little retro in my, you know what I mean? So like when you used to watch TV shows in the seventies and sixties, it was always like a liquor cart or a, you know, a liquor cabinet. I I dream of Jeannie, Tony Dalton, they all, well, I have a liquor cabinet. Nice. When I was uh, when I in my in my apartment like years ago before I moved to California with everything, we I had a bar in the apartment, and I also had like we would have parties. So people would my roommate and I people would leave like alcohol and shit all over the place. We had the bar, right. we had alcohol underneath the bar because I thought that was fucking awesome. And then we literally built shelves like top shelf, whatever people left behind and stuff like that. So that I I totally get. I just never imbibed in it like on my own. I don't know why. Yeah, I was never that guy who like come home. Oh, I gotta have a beer. Were you I mean, like that on stage when you started out? Were you, were you one of those comics that started out yes. and used it as a crutch? Yes. Oh, I got to have that one beer before I go on stage. It'll wow. loosen me up. But then I was just, I became that comic who'd like be standing outside the stage door smoking a joint while my feature act was on stage, oh. knowing that I had to do an hour. So I had to get high. So I'd be high for the hour. I could not. How do you do that? How the uh, that, well, that thing was like a functioning stoner. Wow. And it just was not, I got to be honest, and this is the thing, if anyone even listens or gives a shit, I'm so much clearer, I'm so much sharper, I'm so much more motivated, I'm so much more productive, I'm so much um, more present, and I'm more in touch with certain parts of my psyche and my emotional uh, state of mind, and just, I've never been emotionally unavailable to anybody, but it really has, um, it's really made me love being awake more, if that makes oh, that's good, man. sense whatsoever. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I totally agree, man. That's great. Um, yeah. I want to ask you, tell me a little bit about Paramount. Oh, you son of a bitch, you. <laughs> Paramount Studios, man. That's where it all began for me, uh-huh. doing stand-up. So I was uh, 20. I was okay. a kid and I had a small role on a soap opera on NBC called Santa Barbara right. and it lasted for a very short period of time. That's another funny story, how I got fired from my first acting job. <laughs> I did. I got fired from that job and um, I, I needed a gig after Santa Barbara fired me. So I knew a kid from acting class who was a guard at Paramount. Okay. So I was like, I need a job. And he goes, I can get you a job. So I got a job at Paramount Studios as a security guard, and I was 20 years old. Oh, my God. And I was like this fit, in shape, long, freaking Scott Bayo chachi hair. And <laughs> I was riding around Paramount on a bicycle with a radio and keys. And, right. um, yeah, and I was a guard at Paramount, and I met everybody. I mean, Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg. and Holy I shit. Friends with Michael J. Fox and – I met Ed Murphy. It was really a pretty incredible two years, but it is really, if I never got that job, there's a really strong chance I never, ever would have become a stand-up comedian. Wow. Because I met Mark Price. Holy shit. Mark was playing Skippy on Family Ties. Right. He was on the Michael J. Fox show, and Mark and I met one afternoon on the lot, and we became like instant friends. And we were hanging out at his apartment one night. And he's like, oh, my God, you're so funny, Richie. You should do stand-up comedy. And I'm like, no. I study acting with Stella Adler, young man. (laughs) I'm a thespian. I'm not a court jester to be mocked and laughed at. Right. 
And he goes, well, that's really good, but small theater's kind of dead in L.A. right now, and you're really funny, and I can get you on stage. And two weeks later, I did five minutes at the old original Laugh Factory before oh, it grew wow. into anything. It was this tiny little room that held 80 people. Holy shit. And I got laughs that night. It was immediate satisfaction, like being on stage in a theater, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I got addicted. It was like a shot of heroin in my veins, man. I'm telling you, I was out six, seven nights a week doing sometimes two, three sets a night. Right. And two and a half years later, I got fired from Paramount and went on the road full time. I want to get back to how you got fired, but I also want to know, because I know your act and I know what you do now. Uh, Obviously, we just saw each other a few years ago, so I'm sure it's not like that much different. But what was your what were you like when you first started? How much have you changed from that? It was terrible. Oh, not even terrible. What about the material? Like, what were you talking about? Well, I was talking about Paramount. And I was talking about literally the first bit Mark and I wrote was about being a guard at Paramount Studios. Oh, nice. And um, I was really, I couldn't, here's the thing. I was an actor Mm. and I was a trained actor. Mm -hmm. So I was going on stage easily my first two years, two and a half years, maybe three. I was going on stage, (laughs) I didn't even admit this, acting like Uh, a stand-up comedian. Hey, how you guys doing? You know, I was uh, I was playing the part of a stand-up, or I, I nobody told me any better, you know. Yeah. And then I started like I met guys like Paul Mooney and Rich Jenny. And, oh. Richard, you know, dude, Richard Jenny, one of my all-time favorite comics. Like, yeah. that, was, that was one of the first comics I ever saw on uh, TV, and one of the first comics I ever saw live. Yeah, he was such a great guy, and really helped me a lot. Paul Mooney helped me a lot. George Wallace was the very first Love George Wallace. Um, real big name headliner that I ever worked with at Catch a Rising Star in Vegas. Wow. And George, George is the sweetest man and the most generous, generous, generous soul. He watches the people who go up before him. And I had no idea about this. And on like the third night, I remember after the show, he was like, youngster, come here, youngster. Every time I see him, he still calls me youngster. <laughs> Youngster, get over here. Let me talk to you. And he sat me down for about 45 minutes and he gave me a lot of pointers and how to, you know, get out of your head and be present on stage and be, try to be yourself. He goes, I can tell you're, you're, you're wrapped up in something. You're playing a part. Like he could tell yeah. that I was different off stage than I was on stage, you know, and he's the first guy who really kind of got my head straight in terms of trying to bring the guy off stage on stage nice who was the first one to take you out on the road first person yeah yeah um a guy named steve-o not steve-o from jackass but there was a from the howard stern clan Hmm. and if you listen to like howard stern underwear party he's the guy who joke off with jackie joke man martling okay steve-o i met through wayne fetterman and another wayne fetterman great guy another, another amazing guy yeah, super and funny. Uh, Steve was staying at their apartment while he was out here doing Star Search. Okay, and he, um, he, we became friends, and he was going on the road for three weeks in Michigan, wow. and he asked me if I wanted to come be the opening act. Oh my god! And my plane ticket was like two hundred and twenty-five dollars. And we were on the road three weeks, and uh, back then openers were making like five hundred and fifty bucks a week. 
and I had to do 15 minutes. And, you know, you're the host slash MC. That's sure. really the job. And uh, Steve and I spent every night in the hotel room and he was teaching me about joke structure and different styles of jokes and nice. how to be a really good host and not do my act, go mm -hmm. up and talk to the crowd and ingratiate them and, you know, really do host work, not crowd work. And I, I learned a lot in those three weeks. And he was the first real guy to take me on the road. Wow. That's yeah. awesome, man. I mean, I it's like, I feel like people never forget like the first comic to take them out on the road. It's usually not somebody, very rarely is it somebody huge right off the bat, you know what I mean? Who like lasted in the business, but somebody who is just, who can spot talent when they see it. And is like, hey man, you want to come learn how to do the fucking road? And that's it. After after him, Mark Price asked me to go on the road with him. Oh, and nice. Mark was a massive celebrity. You know, yeah. he's on like the number one television show in the world. Yeah. And we went on the road for that lasted for a few years. Um, yeah, that 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 changed. I mean, I was a feature act at that point. And um, he took me on the road with him for a while. And, you know, he was the first real celebrity hmm. to ever take me on the road. OK, so now I want to go backtrack real quick. I want to know how you got fired. One, if you want to talk about it. But two, do you still talk to the dude who got you the job on Paramount? Are you guys still friends? <sighs> he passed away. Oh, sorry about that. His name was Mike Fiore, and he was from a, one town over. He was from Hicksville, and I was from Jericho on Long Island. Oh, wow. And we met in an acting class, and um, Mike uh, Mike is the guy who got me the job. Yeah, I don't care. I'm not embarrassed. They hated me at Paramount. <laughs> they, when they interviewed me, they said, now, you don't want to be an actor, right? And I went, what, that crazy business? And the guy who interviewed me goes, well, why do you want to be a security guard? And I looked at him dead in the face. I'll never forget this. I said, and this is a direct quote. I said to him, well, I understand studio protection is a growing field. I'd like to get in on the ground floor. <laughs> oh, that's a great line. That was what I said to him. And, um, and I lasted there for about two years and they found out somehow, I think somebody saw me doing like an open mic at the Laugh Factory or they saw me like uh, at the Laugh Factory go on stage like late night one night and it got back to the security office that Rich Chasler was doing stand-up comedy. Uh -huh. And so they started moving my shifts around and put me on graveyard midnight to eight. They tried to get me to quit. Wow. But I refused to quit because I was making like 400 bucks a week. And I'm like 21, 22 years old. And in mm -hmm. 1986, 87, that's like real money. Right. You know? And uh, they moved me to a shift that was 5.30 in the morning until 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And they had me at the old original Bronson Gate. And okay. I would, I would get in. Now, remember, I was up doing stand-up comedy sometimes till 1 or 2 in the morning. I had to be mm -hmm. at work at 5 clock right we would get there at 4 30 to put my uniform on and stuff so i would wear my varnies and i would go this to the gate and i'd be sleeping behind my sunglasses and people would just be walking in and out of the gate and people got back to the security office and one day the sergeant came down and caught me sleeping and i got fired for sleeping on the job <laughs> that's a good way to go though at least you got your rest in you know i did um, so we had Dan Pasternak on the show who says, he's love Dan you. Pasternak. Every, I, dude, no, everybody knows Dan Pasternak and he's, how can you not love Dan Pasternak? That's the love thing. The, I've known he's Dan the best. Pasternak 
for a long, long He said he was an intern on the lot. He met you as a security guard. He says he was an intern on the lot. Yeah. He was an intern on the lot. He had a nickname we don't talk about. And um, you can't just, you cannot come on to this show, drop a bombshell like that, and then step out of it. I love Dan so much that I'm not, but I've known Dan since he had a different name. All right. I love him so much and respect him so much. And he's such a good friend that I just can't, I can't throw him under the bus because I love him. I respect that. I love him so much. But I had a nickname too back in the day, so Dan and I are going to have to talk in exchange today. We'll, we'll, you can, we'll, you can we'll lock it in a vault. But I really love Dan Pasternak a lot, and he's, yeah, he's really guy. one of the best guys. Yeah, absolutely. I feel bad for people who don't know Dan Pasternak. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. That's even better. So when you were, so you moved out to Paramount, you were, you just said you were 20, 21. I started stand up when I was 20. Uh, did you always want to be a comic? What was the, did you have any other passion before? Or like, not even an act, like an actor. Did you want to be in entertainment or did you oh, want to I never know. Since I started playing drums when I was like six and a half, almost seven, That's pretty bad. I started doing theater in first grade. Wow. There was never, ever a question for me that I was going to be an actor. Would your parents think of it? And it's in my family a little bit. My oh. cousin is, uh, his name's Louis J. Stadlin. Lewis is a huge Broadway institution. He stars in every one of, he's him and Nathan Lane have starred in seven shows together. He's wow. been doing Neil Simon. He starred in The Producers with Richard Kind. He played the veterinarian oh. on uh, The Sopranos, the guy who they would call to come take bullets out of people, but he was actually a veterinarian. Oh my God. Yeah. I know who you're talking about now. Yeah. That's my cousin Lou. That's and Lewis's so, father, my uncle, was the voice of Popeye. No way. The voice of Howdy Doody after Buffalo Bob Smith got sick and couldn't do it anymore. Oh, he man. was the voice of most of the characters on Underdog, Riff Raff, Simon Oh, Bob man. Spencer. Yeah, that, that's my uncle. His name's Alan Swift. Oh, um, wow. And so I guess it got to me. Yeah. And I started playing drums when I was like almost seven. I built a drum set in the basement, and two weeks later, there was a drum teacher in my house, and I... And I still play. I've been playing ever since. And oh, so, nice. you know, it, for me, show business was the only thing I ever gave a shit about. To be Did honest, you want to be in a band? I played in several bands. I toured oh, with I... a band. Yeah. Oh, sweet. I toured with a Grateful Dead tribute band called Miracle Ticket. Oh, that's fucking awesome. We sold over a thousand tickets a show. It was literally like being in the dead. That's so fucking great, man. Yeah, and I played Mickey Hart, one of the two drummers. Nice. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. sick. That was a lot of fun. I, I, I did it in between like stand-up tours and yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Was it hard to go from, I mean, cause you, you kind of went from the acting thing. You still, you still act obviously, yeah. but I mean like you went from acting and then into stand-up and then obviously you started going on the road. Did it feel like you were giving up on the acting thing when you joined stand, when you started doing the stand-up thing? Did you feel like one dream was dying to pursue something else or were you able to go, no, this is my access road through like, like through stand-up into act back into acting? Well, that's a great question, John, because the business was different when I started in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And networks would give stand-up comedians holding deals, right? which meant that you were now like under that network's tutelage. And then they would try to develop a sitcom for you. And okay. they, would pay you, they would pay you money not to go into business with any other network. So right. then stand-up comedy was a real true panacea to a potential acting career. Mm-hmm. And um, the problem was that I had agents, but I would be gone 
35 weeks, 40 weeks a year on the road. Right. Because I needed to make a living. Stand up sort of became my table waiting job. Okay. You know, I didn't have to work in the restaurant. I, I was a stand up comedian on the road. Right. And the agents would get sick of it. They'd be like, we have to drop you. You're never here. We have auditions that you can't do. Wow. So I kept losing agents because. I was on the road a lot, but you'd go meet with an agent. You'd be like, well, I'm a stand-up comedian. Ooh, sign here. <laughs> and then they go, wait a minute. You're a stand-up comedian. You're never here. Well, mm -hmm. told me to sign here. They didn't right. take the road part into account. So sure. it, 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 it certainly got in the way a little bit. It's right. difficult. It was at that time difficult to do both. I'm not on the road as much now as I used to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm still Is there one you prefer over the other? Yes. If the president of show business called me and said, Mr. Chastler, you could either fill Carnegie Hall and be the biggest stand-up comedian known to man, but you can never act again and you got to give up your uh, union membership, or you could get some of the best roles ever and even get nominated for an Oscar, potentially win, but you could never step on stage and do stand-up again. I think I would probably choose the acting. Yeah, wow. I think so. It's a little bit more, a little, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was just saying to somebody last night how much I love stand-up and I will never, ever quit yeah. stand-up. You can tell when you're on stage. Form. I just love the art form so mm. much. But there's something a little bit more of an intellectual brain scratch mm. in the acting. You know, like being in the conversation with the director and it's heady and why do you think this character's thinking this way? Do you prefer the collaborative element? Then you do like the on stage by yourself, like you'd rather have a lot of people around and people to work off of. Well, I guess for the purpose of this conversation at this very minute in time, <laughs> yes. But if you ask me this tomorrow after I do a show tonight, I right. might do something different, you know? Yeah. You've been doing um you've you you've been doing supernova a lot, right? I see you post I, I see you always up in there. That looks like a fucking blast, man. I haven't been it, back out to LA yet to do it. It is special. Supernova is really special. It's yeah. an outdoor show in LA that's in the round. And I'm wow. going to give a shout out to the guy who runs it, Mark Saratella. Because oh, great. Mark does an unbelievably good job at not only booking the show, but running the show and keeping everything going. That guy's got to be on the spectrum somewhere. I don't even know where. Or he works out at Spectrum. Or he just has Spectrum and watches a lot of TV. But right. <laughs> he, I'm telling you, he is so savant about this. It is brilliant. Yeah. Like, really, he does I've such heard. an amazing job. I can't say enough good things about Mark. Not only is he a nice guy, but he's a really, really great stand-up. And he's got this incredible ability to produce shows. And Supernova is monster. It's, it's always major names. I, you know... I always see my my face on the poster, and I'm like, one of these things is not like the others. I know, I know what you mean, man. It's kind of funny when you do that. I've, I've been in the same situation where it's like you, and then there's fucking Bill Burr and somebody else on the side of a thing, and you're just like, I do not belong. This well, is, I, you, you immediately. I know I do. You know you do. I see you on there, and it feels like it, it fits completely. But right. I, I'm saying anytime it is being there. No, yeah, anytime. It, yeah, yeah. Anytime it's yourself, and you're looking at it, you're like, "Fuck!" Like this is like a weird lineup. 
Um, that's great. great. I mean, I've done shows with, I mean, there's been some really incredible talent that well, you get who, to work with. Who was your crew? Did you, did you have a, uh, like a crew? Cause I know LA comedy is a little weird. And when you go out on the road and stuff like that, you kind of lose touch, but did you have a crew that you came up with? Like somebody that, like, um, group of guys, comics that you kind of hung out with? You know, it's funny when I was an open micer, there were only like 25 open micers in LA really. And we would all show up at the same places every night. We all knew each other. Mm-hmm. But like Jimmy Schubert was coming up with oh. me, and yeah, I used to ride with Jimmy. We go to a place called the Natural Fudge Companies on Thursday, right? And you know, um, uh, Carlos Mencia was just getting started a couple of years after oh, me. Wow. So Mencia was around, you know. I hate to have to mention that name, but it, yeah, I know. Um, uh, Fetterman was again. He had started in New York, but that's a guy who was kind of. He helped me a lot, you know. Nice. So that, that my friends were all older comedians because mm. I, I just gravitated towards all these guys like Wayne Fetterman and Jenny, and so I was hanging out with guys that were older than me that had been doing it longer than me, you know, because yeah. I wanted to be with them. I didn't. Same, want to same thing happened to me when I started. Yeah, same thing happened to me when I started. Man, all my like I like I should have probably hung out with like people that were my age, but the older crew kind of took. Like I, they took me out on the road with them. They kind of t- there's people that took me under their wing and shit, and I would just like hang out with those guys. It was great, right? Was and awesome. the thing, Mark Price, you know, I mean, he was already established, but Mark and I became really good friends. Felicia Michaels, I've oh, known since I'm 20 years old, and Felicia, Carol oh, Montgomery, Felicia. I know you know Carol Montgomery. No, Carol really well. Yeah, Carol was like my comedy big sister. She would like have the scuzzballs stay away. She'd like nobody mess with this kid. Like, she still does that. Yeah. And she's the, she's our comedy mom. She is the best. I love her with my whole heart. Mm-hmm. Like really, she looked out for me. Um, you know, uh, they, so there were, there were some people there that, that I did gravitate to that were kind of like, we were friends So and I'm friends you- with all of them to this day. Yeah. And you were close with, uh, Mitch Hedberg, right? Yeah. yeah Mitch was my best friend. We met in 92. Wow. And we met at a comedy competition in Colorado that then became the Aspen Comedy Festival. And it was put on by Judy Marmel from Levity, who at the time was Judy Brown. Wow. And the story of this was really pretty funny. Mitch and I met at the airport. They lost my luggage. Mm -hmm. We instantly bonded. We sat next to each other every day in the vans they drove us around in. We roomed together for two weeks. And we just became inseparable over this two-week time we were doing this competition and every night there were 15 people in this competition mm-hmm. and every night i would get off stage and every night which would go man Chesler, you are the funniest guy in this thing <laughs> and every night mitch would get off stage and i'd be like mitchie you are absolutely hands down the funniest guy in this thing and every <laughs> night there would be judges and votes and every night mitch and i finished 14th and 15th <laughs> That's, that's fucking great. True, that is a true story. True. That's so good. Mitch hadn't quite. Mitch had a style that was really just a little bit pre what he was doing. Mm-hmm. People didn't get it yet. It was not quite polished. But I was watching him going, "Oh my god, he's going to be so big!" Like I, I knew. Yeah. And he was barely a feature act at the time, like really barely a feature act. And I was just starting a headline. So we would do gigs together and I would oh. take him and, oh yeah. That's great, man. Yeah. 
That's pretty cool, man. That's yeah, a special. Maybe, I mean, he was he. I think he's at least in everybody's top five, like favorite comics that I talked to. And he writes some of the most brilliant jokes ever. I mean, Mitch is the one great thing about being friends with Mitch and being on the road with Mitch. I was on the road with Mitch for like over four years. We toured wow. together, and we would like. We both have this innate love of joke mechanics. Mm -hmm. So we would just sit around during the day, man, Chester, why isn't this joke working? What do you think? And we would tear the jokes down mm -hmm. like mechanics. We would take them apart and figure out what wasn't working. Is it the right inflection? Are there too many syllables? Am I not using the right number? Is the punchline in the wrong place? And we would right. literally just, we would hang out and just work on jokes all the time. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, um, was it when you got to the point where you were headlining? You said you you were headlining. He was featuring at that point. What was the thing? Were you hesitant about headlining going in the first thing, or were you like, no, I've got it? Because everybody kind of does it before they're ready a little bit. But like at that point, were you like fully confident in your ability to headline, or did you just kind of? That's such a great God. That's a great question, dude. You know, back then mm -hmm. you didn't get to headline before you were ready. Now. Okay. These guys, these, these open micers, these, yeah. they're doing it three, four years. And they're like, oh, I'm working on my hour. I'm like, you don't have 15 killer minutes. What I know. are you working on? You know, know man. And the thing me. is, you didn't get to choose to be a headliner. There were none of these pre produced shows with the memes online. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, but I have the headline. It wasn't like that. Right. There were only comedy clubs. Mm -hmm. That's all there were. And you went into the club in whatever position you were supposed to. If you were an opener, you opened until you were ready to feature. And the way you knew you were ready to feature is the club would say to you, can you do a half hour? We can't have you just continually be the opening act. And then you were a feature act. And you were a feature act for three, four years at least mm -hmm. until the club would say to you, look, the headliner's working too after you. Can you do 45 because I can't bring you back to feature anymore? That's how you knew that it was time for you to move up. You didn't just tell the club, yeah, I want to come back in headline. They'd be like, okay, that's a nice thing to want, but no. <laughs> I know, you, yeah, it's crazy. You didn't call the shots that way. You know, yeah. and even when you got on, even when you got on TV, Mm -hmm. That didn't mean all of a sudden because you did Star Search that you were going to be a headliner. It just didn't work that way. The clubs I thought the Carson era guys, though, went from being not ready to ready really quick. You know what I mean? Like if you got a good thing on Carson, no matter how many, how long you were doing it, you were just fucking that was it. Well, yeah, but you needed the time. And there's a lot of examples of that. You know, they're, you know, like uh, I, I, I don't want to shit talk anybody or talk bad do about it. anybody but you do it no you know there's like there's a comedian who was on last comic standing for example and won wow. and didn't have the time to go right. on the road as a headliner you know who i'm talking about right do, yeah. yeah right so that's a really fine example but yeah, when you were doing carson you weren't even you couldn't get carson until you were already a headliner on the road because Jim McCauley, you know how hard it was to first of all get the showcase for Jim McCauley? You basically only got them at the Melrose Improv. Bud Friedman right. was best friends with McCauley, did right. never at the store. And you were working established road guy. Mm -hmm. You know, you just weren't some guy who was doing it for a few years and you got a Carson showcase. Are you kidding me? Yeah. 
That's Hell no. Did not work that way. Were you more of a comedy store guy or an improv guy? I was an improv guy. Nice. You At the time, there was a war. You mm -hmm. couldn't work both rooms. If you worked right. the comedy store, you could not work the improv. I did the comedy store belly room for several years. I ran it. And uh, so I do those shows the first two, three, four years, you know, because I was too intimidated to walk into the improv. Seinfeld, Leno, Bill Maher, like the biggest right. name in stand-up comedy at the time. Like I was afraid to go in there, you know, right. um, I, I just was. And then I started kind of hanging out there a little bit. I did my first showcase, I want to say 89, whatever year Roger Rabbit came out. That oh, was yeah, year, okay. That was the year I did my first showcase because um, Charlie Fleischer came in to do a guest set while I was waiting to do my five minutes while someone was on stage. He did an hour, closed it with his harmonica, then goes, right into the microphone. The crowd erupts, and Mark Lano in the back of the room goes, and now, Rich Chastler. <laughs> oh, my God, that's fucking great. No chance. Yeah, no, not after Charles. Three shots, 1992, Bud Friedman saw me and oh, passed wow. me on a Thursday night in 1992. I became a paid regular at the Improv, which meant nice. I was now working at the crown jewel of oh. all comedy clubs in the world. Right. The place where the king of comedy, Bud Friedman, who started the Improv in New York City in the 60s, thought I was funny enough to take his money to tell right. jokes. And that, man, I can't tell you what that does for your comedy confidence. Oh man, okay, we gotta be fucking huge. Can't, I had an abusive father who would put me down in rooms full of people and tell me I wasn't funny. I'd go, I don't care what you say, Bud Friedman says the opposite. Yeah, that's great, man. You know, Were you, were you around for the strike? No, the strike was 1979. I started in uh, September of 85. Oh, okay, okay. So I missed the strike. You missed the strike. Well, that's yes. not bad then. At least you got the benefits of it. I got the benefits of it. Yeah. yeah. I, I um, really did. When, so, like, so now you're back on the road, you're doing headlining stuff or whatever. Was there a point where you decided to go, okay, look, I'm going to go and focus more on my acting and kind of leave, maybe like bow out of stand up a little bit? You know what I mean? Because you were saying like your agents were getting pissed because you weren't there anymore. Right. I'm wondering what the decision was to go, like, all right, look, I kind of want to act. I miss it. I want to get back to it. Um, yeah, some of it was getting work. Mm -hmm. I, I booked a couple of movie roles. Um, well, this was before Hitchcock. Oh, okay, okay. This was before Hitchcock. Um, I, I booked a part in a short film directed by a brilliant writer and director named Amy Kanan Mann. And mm -hmm. Amy Mann is Michael Mann's daughter. Oh, wow. And she made a movie called The Thousandth Man, and I got cast in the lead role mm -hmm. and she was so brilliant. And this week on set with her really started to make me think, wow, I really need to be doing more deep, really deep work. And at the screening at the Writers Guild, uh, Michael Mann was sitting right in front of us. And I was sitting a row behind Michael next to the casting director. Amy was sitting two seats down. And during the movie, Mm -hmm. Michael turns around and looks at me and he says, you know, you're going to win an Oscar one day. Wow. No kidding. And so that really got me thinking. Yeah. And that was 1995. 
And I know that because I got cast in the movie the day Jerry Garcia died, August. Oh 8th. shit! Yeah, that was the day the casting director called me and said I was watching it on the news. And the casting director calls me at uh, my apartment, and she's like, "Hi, Richard. It's so and so. We want to offer you the role in Thousandth Man." And I'm just I don't even answer. She goes, "Hello." Hello? And I go, listen, one of my best friends just died. I'll take the part, but I got to call you later. And I hung up the phone. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. My next question was going to be, does that kind of thing affect you? But yes, obviously it does. <laughs> like that's, that's Did like. But then I got cast. Amy gave me another role in a movie. And Michael gave me a very small part in um, The Insider. Oh, nice. And and I got to do a scene with uh, with um, Al Pacino and the brilliant Debbie Mazur, who is just oh my God. I love Debbie Mazur. She's yeah. awesome. And I got to do a little scene with them. It didn't make it into the movie, but I got to play an assistant who comes in and has two lines. And I'm on set with Christopher Plummer and Al Pacino and Debbie Mazur, and I'm like, yeah, Holy this shit. is this is pretty big time, you know. I want to be doing this. Yeah. What are you thinking when you're about to walk out onto a set, onto a soundstage, and Pacino's there and Plummer? You know what I mean? Like, are you black out? Do you fuck black out and then think about it later? Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. It's always going through my head was don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. And Pacino's right. walking around smoking and Christopher Plummer's smoking and the whole fucking set reeked like a fucking ashtray. And all I could think is, and there's 150 people on set. It's a made this is a major movie, you know. And all I could think is, don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Wow. Yeah, I was nervous as shit. That's crazy, man. Yeah. So then you're doing that kind of stuff, and that's what kind of got you into it. It was just more work and more roles, and you notice yourself kind of like not going out on the road as much and focusing on the because it's a hard thing to balance, man. I mean, you've been doing both for such a long time; it's got to be frustrating because one, like you said, is the money maker, and the other I one mean, is your passion. It sounds like, yeah. I mean, believe me, I, nothing would make me happier right now than and it could happen this year. Um, nothing would make me happier right now than to get cast on a one-hour drama that shoots in New York. Oh, nice. I'll then, see what I can do. I'm will you kidding. please, John? Uh, yeah, I'll just make a few. Let them know I'm free. Yeah. What, what? So tell me about Hitchcock, though. How'd you wind up landing that? Because that's a great film. That was a, I, that was a lucky deal. That was a straight audition through my agent. And I went in to read for the role of Martin Balsam. And there was a guy in the waiting room who looked just like Martin Balsam. And I'm literally sitting there going, oh, I'm never going to get this. This guy looks just like Martin Balsam. What do they want right. with Chachi? You know? And um, I went in and read. And apparently, my that role was the last role they cast. They couldn't find someone. And I this, this story I'm going to tell you was told to me by the guy who wrote the movie. Wow. All right? He told this to me at the, uh, at the rap party. They mm. couldn't find anyone to play the part. And... They kept watching auditions and watching auditions, but nobody really got that Arbor Gast, Martin Balsam vibe. And mm -hmm. I went into Red to read, and I did a couple of reads, and then Terry Taylor, the uh, casting director, asked me to do some improv. So we oh. did a little bit of improv. And he told me that when they, the writer was in on the casting sessions, and he said, when we saw your tape, we knew right away. And I actually said, that's the guy. And everyone said, that's the guy. Wow. And that's how I got the role in Hitchcock. And I got to work with Helen Mirren. And yeah. that was. She seems like she's actually a lot of fun. So much fun. Yeah. 
She's all business when the camera rolls, but wow, was she a lot of fun on set. She's one of those people, like, even in interviews, she's not stiff. She seems like she's just been around and she's a good time. Like, oh, that's right. Oh, she's absolutely super sarcastic, super funny. She's very approachable. She's really, I mean, she's Dame Helen Mirren. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, but man. she's more like dude Helen Mirren. <laughs> Um, so you're doing, you're not, you told me beforehand, you're recording a new album, a new comedy album. Were you working on this stuff material? Like during the pandemic? Like, is that where all this is kind of coming from? And now you started to go back out or what? Well, the pandemic was, you know, that, that was kind of like putting the brakes on comedy because there was no comedy and they do some zoom shows and those were terrible. And, um, so uh, some of its material that was actually, uh, I would say a good portion of it is material that was written before pandemic. Okay. And started to be done and worked out. And I was doing some of it on the road. And then the pandemic comes and you can't do anything for almost two years. Yep. You know, and um, some of it's newer than that, you know, but it's uh, it's a it's an amalgamation of a bunch of stuff. And it's it's uh, it's a lot dirtier than I want to be on stage. So part of me is excited to put it to bed. And, um, oh, wow. you know, I'm writing new stuff now for when this is over. Mm-hmm. And um, there's things in my life that are different now and nice, you know, uh, just dating different type of woman than I've ever dated. You know, it's just a little bit different. Things are just different. So that's cool, man. The comedy is a little bit different. So you never, so when you, once you put an album out, you never go back. No, I don't know that that's necessarily true. You, I mean, you burn the material, but I think that a lot of it is still live to do. You can still yeah. do some of it, I think. it's Yeah. But do you feel like a genuine detach? Like like you said, like it's a little bit dirty than you'd like to be. Do you feel a detachment from it already? Like, you so, know. Wow. Not a detachment. I just feel like it's funny, but it's not totally representative of this man. Gotcha. Okay. You know? Yeah. So I, I'm, that's why I just, I'm writing a little bit differently now and I'm just trying to write a little smarter and a little less, uh, frat juvenile, you know, like, Hey, it's dirty and it's funny. You know what I mean? This woman has changed your life and you can't tell me anything about it. The, 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 the lady in your life, you said, uh, there's a lady kind of sort of, yeah, there's a lady. Yeah, and I know you won't tell me any, you know, you said you won't say any more details, yeah, I'm but I'm just saying about, I'm just private about certain things. And, totally get you know, it. Just, that's all. Just a like, respect thing. That, I you got know, you. Some people don't need to be talked about, and, you know. Yeah, I'm just going to harass the shit of you in this ends. Um. <laughs> you know, she's, um, she's, uh, she's very special, and she's very smart, and she's, um, she's an actress, Oh, and nice. she, she's an actress and she's um she's very very bright and uh she's very supportive and you know she's That's great man yeah it's about all i need to say i we had a, uh one of our followers asked if it was helen mirren <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it is helen mirren helen and it, I was was it was dan it was dan i'm dating more <laughs> i'm dating more age appropriate now so very you know, nice that makes sense Fits right yeah. in that category. You don't want to get into that uh, Zach Braff, Florence Pugh situation that the internet hates, apparently. I love that they shit on them for their age difference, but it's like 
fucking Holland Taylor and uh, Heather Paulson. Is that her name? Paulson? Sarah Paulson. Paulson. There's like a 32 year age gap, and people are like, let him fuck. It's fine. Uh, Holland Taylor's like 79. What's I don't name? know if that's 40. people. I don't know if that's because people don't want to poo poo on a gay relationship. They don't. Gay and, and and a woman. They're like we don't because you know what they don't they don't know the language yet to figure out how to be self righteous about that. Well, I can. I look for me. I don't really care. The okay. truth is, I dated a lot of younger women, mm -hmm. and I. After my last relationship, which was like a pandemic thing, you know, I was with someone who was in their mid thirties and I knew that it was too young and I knew that they were just, I just, I think there's gotta be, I mean, yes, there's gotta be things that you have mutually that work for you. But I also think there has to be like mutual levels of maturity and you need to be able to enjoy doing a lot of the same things. And yeah. For me, I just knew that I needed to be with somebody who could really, truly get me mm -hmm. and had enough life experience to understand my complexities and my shortcomings. And, you know, I'm a little bit of a renaissance guy and I like yeah. to do a lot of different things. And I just needed someone who was really um, well put together. Yeah. I don't even know if it's like mutual levels of maturity as much as it is mutual levels of exhaustion. I'm tired. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, oh, are you also tired at the same times? Cause that'd be nice. You um, know, that's funny. No, I mean, it's not even that we just, I just, for me again, I just knew, I knew that I, 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 I was getting a lot of flack from some of my friends' wives also like, you know, you get 10 years. No more than 10 years. Anything that's more than 10 years is not age appropriate. And one right. of my wives um, was really, really big on that with me for a long time. And, you know, I never got married and I always wanted to be married. And I'm a hopeless really? woman. Yeah. I've never oh, been wow. married because I take it really seriously. Wow. And if I married someone 20 years my junior when I was in my 40s, that means I'm marrying someone 26, 27. Like, how is yeah. that ever going to last? And if I married someone in their mid thirties, when I'm in my fifties, like, how is that ever going to last? You know, and I don't want to get married because I feel like people are annoying at every stage, no matter what I had it is. pretty much given up on the fact that it was ever even going to be in my cards, to be honest Ooh. with you. And I don't, that's even when know they say you it. find somebody though. I don't even know if it is, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm marrying this person. I'm just saying that I had, I, I just never got married because I take it really seriously and I never wanted to be divorced for me. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah, that's a, that's a nightmare situation, man. I, yeah. I agree. But you know, so I'm, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life personally. You, you seem it, man. I mean, I, this is, this is the, I mean, we've only run into each other a couple of times, but I've known you for a bit of a long time and you're very happy right now. Well, quitting the weed had a lot to do with it. You know, I feel like it's not just seeing me again. I thought it was all me. No, it's all you, baby. <laughs> you know, I'm. You know, you grow, and this is the thing. You know, when you go back to your twenties and your thirties, and I know that I was difficult, and not not a difficult person. Just I was stuck in my own shit. You know, yeah. you grow and you learn, and hopefully, you grow. You stop if you're still doing the same things in your forties you were doing in your twenties. You're not growing. Yep. You know, and I can honestly say, like, I really like the man I've grown into. Right. You know, and that's, again, that's a conglomeration of all kinds of successes and failures and learning and falling down and getting back up and skinning your proverbial life knee and 
you know, some therapy and some hiking and listening to people who know more than you do. And you just, you learn how to shut up eventually. I just want to let you know, you just gave me the name of this episode. It's going to be skinning your proverbial life knee with Rich Chasler. There you go. That's a great. I've never heard that before. That's a very, that's a nice way to put that. Well, that might have to be the name of my album because I still haven't come up with one yet. They're perfect. I was, that was, I was going to ask you if you know the oh. name of it. it. Names are very hard, man, but that skinning your proverbial life name. Is I was thinking about calling it boy out of New York, but you know, cause they're saying you could take the boy out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the boy. Tell me about it, man. But I've I'm not really sure. I, I, you know, there's a few things I've been bouncing around. Yeah. And, no, that's a great. I like I like that one. Too. Anything to do with New York? As New Yorkers, you know, we have to mention it. We have to, you know, we, we really wear the bad honor. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's there so is, much better to say you're from New York than any fucking no, no matter where you're from. Right. Like it's just better to say you're from New York. I know. Um, it really we, is. We blew past. We blew through an hour. I got to ask you the big three questions before uh, yes, our time. Yeah, we'll come out. back to do a part two. Absolutely, dude. You're more than welcome anytime to come back you anytime want. you want. Yeah. Um, so first question is, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, what uh, piece of advice would you give yourself to help you today? I would tell my younger self. Um. I would look at my younger self and say, trust me, you really don't know anything. God gave you two ears and one mouth so you can listen twice as much as you speak. Oh, nice. Very listen, nice. I like that a lot. Listen more. That's what I would tell my younger self. Listen more. Awesome. As smart as you are, listen more. Sweet. Uh, second question. What had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? Um, what had to end in my life? Uh, part of me wants to say my desire to be right, but I don't know if that's all of it. But I think, I think, um, I think learning how to shed ego, mm. you know, being able to transcend yourself to a place where you become uh, a bigger receptor. You know, yeah. that's yeah. the thing, you know, being more open. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, that, and that does have a lot to do with what you said, the first, what you said the first time too. I mean, you know, it's letting go of ego, but also the same thing is like letting go of being right. It's kind of the same gun. It kind of goes hand in hand, right? I suppose. Yeah. Ego drives the other thing. If you're ego, if you're wildly egotistical, man, you always have to be the one who knows what's there. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Um, learning, you know, you when you, you get to that place where you learn how to appreciate people for who they are, not who you want them to be. Oh, yeah. You know, then you become more open-minded and more accepting and not just of people, but about life and life situations and yourself. Mm -hmm. You learn how to forgive yourself and you learn how to look at yourself and say, uh, you lack in this area. We need to grow here. You know, it's just that, that thing about being able to be honest with yourself. Yeah. And when you, when you shed that stuff that you carry with you in your early, you know, 20s and, you know, when you learn how to get rid of that, you create room for yourself to be able to show up more. Beautiful. Um, and the last question ties into the show. My favorite question. So if this was a genuine dystopia and there were alien zombies, uh, you know, a comet heading toward or, or Earth, climate change hit. 
um, and everybody knew it was their last day, how would you want to go out? What would be your epic death? Man, I I don't even know if I can answer that question. But I I mean I don't know. Well, I think I would want to spend it with the person who's making me happy right now, and okay. uh, hopefully in bed. And how would you? What would you I mean, be taken I, out by? What? What would you be taken out by? Do you want to comment? I mean, what would be the what would be the scenario? Well, I would want it to be fast and violent. <laughs> Crush me under a freaking meteor. You know, really, I, I let my brains just get squished and splatter all over the wall, you know. And okay. but if it was gonna happen, and it was the, it was gonna happen at one time, mm-hmm. you know, one time. I guess I would want to be taken out. I would want to spend it with uh, that particular person, and uh, yeah, just make it fast and bloody, and as as dramatic as humanly possible. Fantastic, man, um, <laughs> dude. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I love seeing you, and I hope we get to see each other in person soon. You're going to be out in New York, man, so we're going to get together. There's a good chance I'm going to be in New York for my birthday uh, in June. Nice. I'm going to come in around the 16th. That's my plan. Oh, so, uh, yeah. Are you in the city? Um, I'm, I'm in New Jersey right now. Well, you know, I'm looking for gigs while I'm there, if you know of anything. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly uh, myself and uh, Feature Act, I know, uh, who's really funny. Yeah. So, uh, you we'll know, do some shit together, man. It'll we'd be fun. Love, love to do some shit, but yeah, I'm going to be in for probably the four or five days. It looks like I'm going to come in for my birthday and kick around. So awesome. hopefully I'll be able to see you. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I'll catch you yep. soon. Yep. This was awesome, John. Love to come back anytime. Absolutely, man. Thank you. Love to have you. Thanks so much. Peace, man. Take care. <laughs> Dystopia tonight.